There is an Ozar House Charity Golf Tournament tournament this Saturday. Where's Gary? Gary will be in the foyer, I think, signing people up afterwards today. Um, so if you have not done that, make sure you find Gary and do it. There's also a Walk for Life for the Ozar House uh, uh, Pregnant, uh, whatever you call that, Pregnancy Resource Center. And that is on September the 25th. And there will be more uh, information about that. This will be available so you can register and uh, be a part of the Walk for Life. I want to encourage you. That will be on the 25th, and it is at 9 in the morning. Is that right? 9 in the morning. And that will be there right at Ozer House. Is that right? There in Aetna. So I want to encourage you, if you want to Walk for Life or play golf, uh, to be involved in that, regardless of your interest in either walking or golfing. We do, as a, as a people and as individuals, want to support the ministry that God has given us here in the valley with Osler House. And um, so, make a note of those things. Where are the high boards? Dave and Wixie. Come on up here for a minute, Dave and Wixie. Dave and Wixie, last week, when we were outside, we had visiting with us, Dean and Lori Loftus. Dean has been the director of Redcliffe Bible Camp for a long time. Dave and Wixie minister up at Radcliffe Bible Camp, serve the Lord there on the maintenance staff, and we have supported Dave and Wixie now on to a couple, over a couple decades. Um, it's been a long time. We met Dave before, the, well, Wixie was there, but she wasn't there. <laughs> we met Dave when Dave was just Dave. You remember Dave and he was traveling and uh, building around the country. You came here, was it 2001? I was 2002, when we were constructing this building, and that was our first time that we had the opportunity to work alongside Dave. He helped us put up this beautiful building that we all gather in, and um, then he's traveled around the world doing building projects for churches, helping them, and then eventually now is on full-time staff at Redcliffe, where he and Wixie serve the Lord there and their children, and we support them monthly. And um, some of you are new to the church, have not met Dave and Wixie, or maybe you just don't know them very well. We want to make sure you know them so that you pray for them. And so it's good to have them with us in our service today. They'll be around after the service. Make sure you say hey to them, introduce yourself to them. They may or may not want to shake hands with you. Not because they don't like you, probably just because they don't want to get whatever germ you have. But um, anyway, it's good to have you. Do you want to say anything? Come on up here and say something. You better. Dave's a man of many words. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would like to thank you for all the years of support and um, just how you've supported our ministry and ask that you guys continue to pray for us. Thank you. I'm not, I'll say something. Because he doesn't have many words, but I have many. Um, I, I was planning to the kids when we were coming that you guys have been an amazing church to us. You guys have supported us when we got engaged, when you prayed for him to have a wife, and when we got engaged, you guys helped us. When we got our trailer, you guys helped us. When we lost our truck and we needed a new truck to pull that nice trailer, you guys helped us. When we had needed prayer for uh, a child who may not survive, you guys prayed, you guys sent little preemie clothes, 
You guys have helped us in many ways, and you guys have prayed for us in amazing ways. And I'm, I'm not very good at writing. But, but even when Dad died, I, I don't know if anybody told you, but I had just bought all these groceries, and we were in North Carolina. And I told my mother-in-law, I said, God will supply. And when Ben came for Dad's funeral, we opened the check, and I counted the money. And I was so excited, and I told Mom, I said, I provided every penny that I used at Sam's to feed us all while we were here. And it was amazing once more that you guys have been just such a blessing and such a giving church and also just a praying church. And we, we appreciate it through all these years. We have been married for 15. I know your church for 16 years and he had known you guys for 20 years. And I am, I am very thankful for all of you, so thank you. Thank you for praying for our family. Thank you, Dave and Wixie. I, as we were watching the Sunday School this morning, and uh, Del Tackett was talking about the power of the state. If you missed that, you missed a tremendous lesson today in the Truth Project. But I was thinking of Wixie, because Wixie came to us from Venezuela. And, um, you know, Wixie has seen what can happen in a country when the government gets out of whack and goes off. Talk to, uh, we, we prayed last week for Scott and Christy Beck. We love Scott and Christy, members of our church in Mississippi. He said the storm for them down there was a non-event. And so praise the Lord for that, that the uh, Lord preserved them. Let's go to prayer this morning. Join me at the throne of grace, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's table and uh, continue with our worship and song. Lord, we come before you today. We thank you, Lord, that you are the first fruits of all those who sleep. And that as you have conquered the grave, so too can we. Not because of any good in us, but because of good in you. Because of your death, your triumph over the grave. I thank you, Lord, that we do not have to live all our time here in fear, as it says in Hebrews. Father, we can feel that perfect peace, knowing our times are in your hands, our life is you. And when death comes knocking on our door, it will not conquer us. It will simply take us to your side. We thank you. Pray for our brothers and sisters who have been ill. We lift them before you. We pray for our country. Lord, we live in times of tumult and times of trouble. I think of the people of Afghanistan, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are there, whose lives are literally hanging in a balance during these days. Lord, we know that you can protect them, that you will keep them in the shadow of your wings, and we trust that no matter what you have for them as individuals, that they will be faithful and live out their faith in Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, for each one that's here today. I pray that you would meet us at the table that as we celebrate in remembrance of what you have done, 
as we share together in your broken body, your shed blood, these visual symbols, Lord, may they not just be something we do every month. Lord, may this be something that we truly enter into as an act of worship, remembering what you have done. Thank you for Dave and Wixie. Thank you that they can be here and worship with us. Thank you, Lord, that they have been so faithful to you. Bless them, we pray. Their children as well. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles real quick before we celebrate the table. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just want to read verses to you that are going to dovetail with the message this morning. And since this is the message this morning, I won't take much time with it now. But I want you to notice these verses. In verse 29, the Holy Spirit says to us, this all happened. God choosing, this is the context, God choosing to salvation those that are weak and despised and worthless to the world. And it is in that context, he says in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It is because of Him. It is because of God. That's what he's saying there. It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus. And it is Christ Jesus who became to us. Notice this. This is the message this morning. Where we go in, in, in Romans chapter 11, he became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God wants us to boast. Not in ourselves but in what he has done. He wants us to be a people who confidently proclaim his praises. Not our own, what he has done. Come to the table. We proclaim together his death till he comes. So as the piano is being played, um, you can come. uh, Heads of households, some representative of a family. We're doing that just because of the crowd in the aisles. Makes it easier. You know, look around. You count a couple people. Say, I'm going to go for us. Come grab the cups. Go back to your seats. Go ahead and find a plate. You know, and there's some in the back as well, I believe. And then when we're all situated again, I'll, I'll come to the front and we'll partake together. We, there again, hold it. Because we want to partake together. We are one body in Christ. We partake together as we pray and thank him for what he has done. And so as the piano is being played, let's just freely do so. And um, slip up as you want and then prayerfully wait and we'll come together. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until we come. Matt, would you come and lead us again in worship and song?
Would you please stand together as we sing to the Lord? Praise Him above the
children, you are dismissed from children's church at this time. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. My goal this morning is to read the text, make a couple of introductory remarks, and then go to prayer and then jump into the message. We are finishing chapter 9, 10, and 11, which kind of almost formed a distinct unit of the book of Romans, dealing with the sovereignty of God in salvation. A part of the bigger picture of the book, which began in chapter 1 and stretches to the end of chapter 11, that deals with the glory of God in salvation. The theme of this section began in chapter 1 in verse 16. 
when God the Holy Spirit says to us, Paul is writing here and he says, For I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, this gospel, this gift that is the power of God, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Not your righteousness, the righteousness of God. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul then established for us our need of salvation by teaching us concerning our sinfulness. Chapter 3, for all have sinned. What's the verse? For all have sinned and fallen what? Short of being a good boy? Being short of what? The glory of God. I want you to think about that as we look at the verses we read in a minute. Not just being a good boy. Short of the utter perfection of God, the glory of God. Wages of sin, death, gift of God, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we keep on going through the book. We get to chapter 6. We're we're studying sanctification. We're studying in chapter 7 on the purpose of the law. The struggle within us for sanctification and how what we want to do is not what we end up doing. We do the very thing we hate. Who, Paul says, who will come and give me the victory? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There again, Christ. Chapter 8. Eternal security. Ended chapter 8 with that antiphony of praise, I am convinced, I am persuaded that nothing can separate me from the love that God has for me in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And that was kind of the high watermark of the book. In chapter 9, 10, and 11, we study the sovereignty of God. And now we get to this end of this section, which, by the way, is not the end of the book. It is merely a pivot into the next section. And I will show you that as we go through the message. What he says here is laying the foundation for his very next words in chapter 12. It's important we note that. And here, Paul brings it back into a climax. A climax of praise for what God has done for you and me. He says this, Oh, 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 the depth. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? 
Who has given a gift to him that God might be in his debt and need to repay him? Remember that when you put something in the offering plate. You're not bribing God. For from him, through him, and to him is everything. Look at that statement. From him, through him, to him is everything. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Paul prayed for your people in Ephesians. He prayed this, that with all the saints, your children would be able to comprehend the height, the depth, the breadth, to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. Lord, I have to believe that when the Holy Spirit had Paul pen those words, he wasn't just praying for Ephesian Christians. He was praying for me, and he was praying for your people in this room. And Lord, we cling to that. So Lord Jesus, from your throne today, will you intercede for us? I pray that you would give to us mere humans an inkling just an inkling of the depth, the breadth, the height. I pray that in your name. Amen. In John Piper's book, The Supremacy of God in Preaching, he references a sermon that was preached by a man named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in Massachusetts, early American history. Probably his most well-known sermon that maybe you studied even in American literature was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. God used Jonathan Edwards to ignite fires of revival in the American colonies just prior to our quest for American independence. Many men who lost their lives in that quest were converted in the first great awakening. We'll greet them in heaven. In 1744, he preached a sermon from Revelation chapter 21, verse 6. That sermon foreshadowed a book that he would later write in his life, three years before his death. Which, by the way, now how he died? This sounds really relevant. He was going to become president of oh, Yale, I think. One of the Ivy League. I think it was Yale. He didn't want to go there. He was ministering to the American Indians. 
the outback, did not want to go. The presbytery, or whatever you call the thing, prevailed upon him, and in tears, he said, I'll go. When he got there, he took an inoculation for smallpox, and it killed him. God's in control in all this stuff. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. Anyway, in 1744, that was just sideline. He preaches this sermon that becomes the foundation for a book he would write. And the title of the book that he wrote was this. The end for which God created the world. Now, in our language today, probably the way we would say that is we wouldn't say the end. We would probably say the goal. The goal. The goal for which God created the world. In preaching the sermon, he chose his text, Revelation 21.6, and in that verse it says this, And he said to me, It is done. When Jesus hung upon the cross and he gave up the ghost, as he did so, he said what? It is finished. The debt is paid. But someday, he will say, it is done. What does that mean? From that, Edwards said this. There is a time coming when God's grand design in all his works and dispensations from age to age will be completed and his end or his goal fully obtained. And he will say, done. Ladies, you look in the oven, and you say, done. And out comes the cake. It's done. A time is coming when God will say, done. I am done. What does that mean? Then Edwards asked a question. I want you to listen carefully with me. What is the one great design that God has in view in all of his works and dispensations? What is the one great thing he's trying to do? To which Edwards answers this. I want you to listen carefully. These guys, when they wrote, didn't write like us, writing to seventh graders. Although maybe they were writing to seventh graders then, but they just knew more when they were in seventh grade, right? They're, so you've got to think. That's what he's saying. Now listen to what he answers. This is God's design. It is to present to his son a spouse in perfect glory 
from among sinful, miserable mankind. Blessing all that willingly comply with his will. And destroying all his enemies that oppose it. And so to communicate and glorify himself in Christ. Think about what he said there. If you want to know, now, Old English, but if you want to get the big picture, what is the Bible all about? What's this story? We talk about the gospel. We talk about the Bible. We talk about God. What is God doing since the creation of Adam and Eve until he says it is done? What is God doing? Here's what he's doing. He is redeeming a spouse from miserable, sinful people like us for his son. And all, right, that was the picture in Romans 1 16. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew or you're a Greek. All who willingly comply. As it said in Romans 10 13, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Whoever. Call on his name, you're saved. You're in that spouse. All who willingly comply are his. All who oppose it, he will destroy. And in that grand design, he is glorifying himself in Christ. That's the whole thing. That's what God is doing. In the words that we read this morning, there is this eruption of praise, like a volcano. I can imagine Paul writing these words. Maybe he's in Corinth. Most people think that's where he is when he's writing these words. He's in a bed and breakfast, maybe. No doubt, sipping on coffee. Gotta be. That's where inspiration comes from. Right? Amen? Sitting there in his corner, enjoying God. He's writing. He's writing a letter. And he's just talked about the Gentiles and the Jews. And in his heart, it begins to swell almost to a breaking point as he's thinking on these things. All this when he's talking about the the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. All these things we've studied. And he's just like, oh, oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom, the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable are his ways? He's writing, who has known the mind of the Lord? Very similar to what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. Who has ever been his counselor? Who has ever given him a gift that God would have to repay him? 
For from him and through him and to him are everything. To him be the glory forever. Amen. No doubt he had to take a break before he started chapter 12. Maybe he sang. He begins this with an emotional interjection. It's just in the original language, the letter Omega. And it's just like us saying, oh, oh, wow. It is a word of deep feeling and emotion where he has come to this point in the letter. And it's not like this is just writing a science textbook or something. This is like, oh. He then goes into the attributes and the actions of God. There's a string of quotations here. There's a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. There's a quote from Job chapter 15. There's a quote or an allusion to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. There's a quote from Job 36. Remember Job's interaction with God? You know, Job was interacting with his three friends and then another guy named Eliphaz. And then God talks to Job. God says to him, hey, you. Just shut your mouth for a minute and listen. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Did I ever come to you and ask for your advice? String of quotations. There's a closing exaltation to God alone be the glory and we'll close with a central question. So how can man glorify God? Because this is the big point, right? We, we, we saw this. Um, we've done it in our catechism. What is the chief end of man? There again, we're going back into old language. Westminster Confession, Westminster Catechism. We would there again say, what is the chief goal of man? What is our chief purpose? You know, kids, you're wondering, why am I here? Not like, why am I here this morning? I know you're here because mom and dad drug you here. No, hopefully not. Why am I here? Why am I on the planet? Does it just make money? Do my job? Go home? Buy a house? Go on vacation? What am I here for? What is my chief purpose? The catechism says this, the chief end of man is to what? Glorify God and enjoy him. In, in, in my meditation this week, I spent a lot of time thinking before the Lord, what in the world does it mean to enjoy him? I know what it means like to enjoy being with my wife. To enjoy my kids. To enjoy a cup of coffee. I already mentioned that. What does it mean to enjoy God? Let me ask you, do you enjoy God? And think about this. As Piper, Piper is very insightful on this. You do not glorify God if you don't enjoy him. than not having done it at all many times. 
illustration. I've used it before. You got an anniversary, guys, and you're going to buy flowers for your wife. You come home and you say to her, I got you these flowers because it's our anniversary and it was my duty to do it. <laughs> do you think they were not only good words, do you think you should have just left the flowers in the car? <laughs> now, if you go out in the field and you pluck some weeds and spindly flowers and you bring them in, and you say to your wife, do you know, dear, you are the best thing that ever happened to me. And God brought you to me. And my life has been blessed because of you. Those flowers are treasured. It's not in the action. It's in the heart. And you cannot glorify God if your heart is not in it. The attributes and actions of God. How do you describe the indescribable? How do you explain the inexplicable? God's riches of knowledge and wisdom. Let's just park on that for just a minute. Oh Lord, you have searched me, you know me. You know when I sit down. You know when I get up. There is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You have beset me in front and behind. You have laid your hand upon me. Where can I go from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I descend into the grave, you are there. If I say, I will take the wings of the morning and I will dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. And your hand will guide me. For the darkness does not hide from you. You know it all, you see it all. You proceed it all. He knows. He is wise beyond our comprehension. Have you ever met somebody who's just like a bookie, 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 but doesn't know how to tie their shoes? That's not God. God not only knows everything, in wisdom he knows best how to apply it. This is seen in the reality that no one can know his mind. That is the quote. Who has known the mind of the Lord? And then he says this, who has been his counselor? Who has been his counselor? That word is used all through the New Testament. Most of the times it's used in a nominative sense or in a noun to speak of the council, the Sanhedrin of the Jews. When the Jews had to make a decision as a nation, not just one man made that decision, the Sanhedrin came together, they sat in council. And together they made the decision. In the book of Proverbs it says, in the multitude of what? Counselors there is wisdom There is safety. 
Now think about this. God does never, God does not, nor has he ever needed advice or counsel. Ever. In all eternity. Why do humans go to counselors? Many people go to counselors just because they want somebody to listen to them. I know you heard the story about a guy in New York City. He put an ad in the paper. He was looking for a job. He needed something to do. He just put an ad in the paper. I'll listen to you for 15 minutes for 15 bucks. Put his phone. He made a good living. Why? Because people just want somebody to listen to him. A lot of people go to counselors. They just want somebody to talk to. Essentially, though, we go to counseling or to a counselor to either gain new information or to get a new perspective on what we already know. I don't know what I need to do, so I need some information. Or I already got all the information, but my way of thinking just has me trapped and stuck in a rut, and I need a perspective to help me out. My need of counsel, your need of counsel, shows something. There is a deficiency in you. I'm not saying that's bad, people. It's reality. But there is deficiency. Because there is deficiency, as we go through life, we need counsel. We need advice. We need information. When you need it, get it. It saves you from making a lot of boneheaded decisions. Right? But the fact that God never needs counsel is a revelation to us of his sufficiency. He doesn't need it. There is a comprehensive statement here about reality. I want you to notice it with me real quickly. Ek is the Greek word. Preposition, out of. Pictures movement. Okay, In the original language, in the Greek language, prepositions are very picturesque. And there's movement involved in it. So he's saying here, out of. Out of him, from within him, are all things. Notice that. From him. Dia, through. This is the means of our existence. The reason you're sucking wind today is because he let you. Colossians 1.16 speaks of him. Talks about Christ who is the glory of God, and how that all things hold together in him. He not only created them, it's out of him, but it holds together through him. Ice into pictures movement. Everything came from him, and everything will go back to him. Paul speaks of that in Philippians chapter 2. There is a coming a day 
when every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things on the earth and things that are under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To what? The glory of God the Father. We have here a comprehensive statement about all existence. All existence. Everything that is. COVID-19 included. Comes from him. It continues through him. And ultimately is answerable back to him. I want to just park on this for a second. All of our meaning in life derives from God. Our purpose. When we attempt to live in a way that denies that, we put ourselves on a road to futility and grasping after wind. Ask Solomon. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. So, any truth claim that you bump up against in life, and I don't care where you, where you bump up against it. It could happen on the TV. It could happen on the computer. It could happen at church. It happened in school. Any truth claim you bump up against in life that either denies or diminishes the claim that God has on you is not only dangerous, it is demonic. And ultimately, it leads to damnation. Let's think about that. Any truth claim out there that you bump up against in life that says you are the master of your own fate, if it feels good, do it. There is no God. All this stuff we see, all this existence, all this universe just somehow came by chance. Any truth claim out there that is going to teach you that stuff is dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Because it deceives you. Why does it deceive you? Because your heart is deceitful and you want to believe it. Because what is the one thing you and I don't want to have to do? Not only give our life to God now and take our hands off of it and say whatever you want is good with me. You know what we don't want to do is we don't want to stand before him and answer to him. We don't want to. We would love to get out of this world without that, but my friend, you won't. Nietzsche said God is dead. We talked about that this morning in Sunday school. You know what Nietzsche found out the moment he died? God was alive and well. And you know what he knew before he died? Excuse me. I'm going to knock that over, Katie. You can move on. You know what he found out? You know what he knew before he died? 
because he had suppressed that all his life. It wasn't like he was just, oh, I'm just an innocent thing in this. As he is dying, you know what I guarantee he's thinking about? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. But there's no turning back. Because he had put himself on that road and his heart had been hardened. Now, God could have done anything. I'm not saying Nietzsche didn't get saved in the last minute. Only God knows. All things being equal. When Adolf Hitler put the gun here, Adolf Hitler was not thinking, finally, I'm out of here. I'm just not going to exist. You know what he's thinking? I'm going to God. He knew it. When you lie in the hospital bed and they're trying to keep you alive, you will know you're not just going into nirvana or on the next road on your journey. You're going to meet God. And we don't want to in our flesh. And any truth claim that reinforces that lie is dangerous. Why? Because you want to believe it. Not because it's true, but because you want to believe it and it's comfortable. Amen? Amen. That's me, and I'm a Christian. I know Jesus. And my heart is deceitful. From him, to him, and back to him is everything. And we've got to close, and here's the question. He says, to, to God alone be the glory. To God alone be the glory. You know why he says that? Because Paul's realizing something. He's just like me, and he's just like you. His heart is deceitful, and he's a sinner, and if it was up to him to save himself, he'd never get there. Not me. I would be. I am lost. So it is God alone who gets the glory. In the Psalms, it says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give the glory. In Isaiah 48, 11, he says this, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you. I will not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not like silver. I have tried you in a furnace of affliction. For my sake, and then he reiterates it. For my sake, I do this. For how shall my name be profaned before the nations? My glory I will not give to another. Flip to chapter 16, and I'll bring it all together, because this is what I want to answer as we close, and it sets the stage for where we go. How do we glorify God? Chapter 16, verse 27, he ends the book on the same note. To the only wise God be the glory forever through Jesus Christ. That's how we glorify God, through Jesus Christ. You must be in Christ. I'm telling you again, you're going to stand before God. You are going to meet Him. 
when you stand before him and you meet him, our only hope, our only friend, is Jesus Christ. And we will fall before him and we will thank him. And we will give him all the glory. So as Edward said, his chief goal is to present to his son a spouse in perfect glory from among sinful, miserable mankind, blessing everyone that complies willfully with his will, destroying those who oppose it, and thus glorifying himself through Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord, I thank you that you devised a plan to save us that did not in any regard rest upon us. We would screw it up. The church would screw it up. We screwed up so much in the years and in the ages. We are miserable, sinful mankind. And yet, Lord, you looked upon us in pity and compassion. And for your name and for your glory, through Jesus Christ, you forgave us of all trespasses. You bore them to your cross. And there is no condemnation to those in Christ. So, Lord... I pray that your Holy Spirit would ignite within us not a fear of meeting you, but a longing. And Father, may we enjoy you now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing a closing song together?
of our own. It's all that you have done for us. And so, Lord, we, we thank you. Lord, all things should be done to your glory, not our own. And so, Lord, we pray, Lord, that our lives would bring glory to you. Lord, that you would receive glory from how we live them, how we act, how we, how we think, what we say and what we do. May our lives be conformed to your image so that we can be effective in serving you and furthering your kingdom. Lord, we say all these things to your glory forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed.